A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. This is CMO Moves the podcast that showcases the human side of game-changing leaders. Here's their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. We hope you'll enjoy their stories and take away a few tips and inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CMO Moves. I am your guest host today, Stephanie Patrick, Editor-in-Chief of Adweek, and I have a very special guest. I'm so excited to talk with Kelly Cook, the Chief Marketing and IT Officer of David's Bridal, who's joining us from Texas. Am I right? No, I'm in Philly today. I'm in Philly all week today. (laughs) All week this week, actually. (laughs) Yeah. One reason I'm so excited to talk to you is that it's June and we are in wedding season. And the big question on my mind is, are weddings back? Well, here's what I will tell you. Winter storms, COVID-1, COVID-2, COVID-3, murder hornets. It doesn't matter. You can't cancel love. Period. Cannot happen. It cannot be done. And I think that's one of the best parts about our business. Yes, weddings are back. We're anticipating between 20 to 40% increase in weddings this year. So it's a a very, very excited time to be in the love business. (laughs) I love that. The love business. I I read recently that last year weddings were down somewhere between 25 and 50%. And David's Bridal, you really have your ear to the ground. I wonder if you are seeing just in your data, any indication that it's coming back on, that it's coming back on this year with the vaccine out. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. So last year when COVID hit, about 10%, a little less than 10% of all the brides said, I'm canceling my wedding. I'm done. I don't want to deal with it. I'm just not going to worry about it right now. And then the remainder, about half of them said, we're going to move our weddings to the fall. And the other half said, we're going to move them into 21, which is this year that we're in. So the 21 brides that moved, the 20 brides that moved their weddings into 21 scooped up a lot of the uh, venue capacity. Well, when the brides got to the latter part of last year and realized that the COVID situation wasn't coming, wasn't coming to a head and there were still lockdowns and legislative restrictions, they kind of started panicking like, oh no, I got to move my wedding into 20, 21 and there's no capacity left. So that's why we're having such a surge this year. Like I said, it's an exciting time. We're definitely seeing our business performing nicely we're beating in all categories right now. And a little fun fact, you talk about data, because I'm definitely a data super nerd, definitely a super nerd. We found out that last year's brides who decided to have a mini money and plan a second ceremony this year, about a third of those ladies that did that are now going to be mommies this year. So their celebration parties with a maternity gown now when they got married last year in a mini money. So you, you can always find the truth in the data, right? It's a, it, data is both a history teacher and fortune teller, right? So it's a, it's a lot of fun. That's amazing. I'm so fascinated by how this past year is changing the way that we live, you know, and, and we'll do so going forward. And I love, I hadn't even heard the term mini money before. <laughs> Something oh, new sprung up. And mini monies, there's mini moons now for a mini honey. Yeah, it's, a, it's like I said, we have our own dictionary. <laughs> so you, you joined David's Bridal in November of 2019. What made you take the leap into this role at that time? There were three reasons. I was actually looking at a, a CEO job in Texas, a small retailer in Texas. And I was really, I was really, really struggling between that job and David's bridal. And the thing that pushed me over to David's was really three things. One is I met Jim and really liked the way he thought about retail transformation. It wasn't that oh, here's my profit target, or here's my EBITDA target. He really understood that digital is a way of life, not just an e-com site. And a lot of people think digital is an e-com site, and it is actually the way we are interacting each day with each other, our family, our friends, how we conduct business, how we live our lives, how we register our cars, like all of that. So he really understood what digital actually meant. Two, the people that I met here where I would describe them is they kind of take what they do seriously, but not themselves. And that's definitely the way I am, you know, don't pee on my boots and tell me it's raining, right? I like just the way shoot straight. I'm a straight shooter, you know, let's get our hands dirty. Let's make magic happen. And the third reason was the culture. I really love a culture that is based in servant's heart mentality and, and servant's heart leadership and really making the guy next to you, whether it's your fellow colleague or a customer uh, or a potential partner that we have, making them a hero. And Jim really believed in that and felt like that that was the strong way to make sure that we are successful as a company. And so all around, all the buttons were pushed the right way. Conversely, I didn't feel that in the other opportunity that I was looking at. So that's why I'm here. I love hearing how you made that decision. Did you always know that you wanted to get into marketing? At what point in your life did you realize that this might be your career? 
That is such a great question, Stephanie. I actually got that very question on Friday with my uh, mentor or the mentee that I met through you guys. We had our meeting last week and it was awesome. And we were on the phone for or on Zoom for an hour and a half talking about that. She asked me that same thing. I actually didn't. My, my background is in math. And I have a master's in finance and, a, and an MBA. So I don't have a marketing degree. I mean, I have a discipline in marketing in my MBA, but I didn't start out thinking, oh, I'm going to be a marketer. I just started trying things and seeing what fit. You know, I started, believe it or not, I was a, my first job was a secretary or temp as in a secretary of pool. I've just had this crazy, like really fun experiences, but my first job that I really loved was a financial analyst job. And that's where I started to learn the value of numbers. And I loved numbers and analysis. The second job I had was running a call center. So I really understood the value of customer experience, right? So then first I had data, then I had customer experience. Then the third job I had was launching the enterprise data warehouse project at, a, at Continental Airlines, first one we ever had. So then I had finance and then I had customer experience and I had data. And what I realized is when I put all those three together and wrap it around a brand strategy, but a boom, now you're a marketer, right? So that's sort of how it all played out. And I, I haven't been out of marketing since. God bless the hearts of all the people I have to work with to deal with me all the time. <laughs> but I haven't left marketing since. I've changed industries, but I haven't left marketing. Bada boom. I love those. <laughs> Very naturally sort of found those three key competencies and put and we're and managed to put it all together. Something that strikes me about your career trajectory is that you have a track record of revitalizing brands. You've worked with waste management, with DSW, Kmart, Sears. And I wonder if there's something in particular that attracts you to that type of work. Yeah, I actually get this question a lot because people are like, wait, what? Why do you like that so much? It's actually pretty fascinating. If you've ever been through Gallup Strength Finders, if you haven't, I highly recommend them. It's a website that allows you to understand sort of how you're wired and where you get your mojo from and what you find and where you get your energy from. I did that a few years ago. And it's so funny because I get, I got my strengths back. I'm like, it's so crystal clear to me why I am the way I am. Uh, my first strength, my number one strength is learner. So I love learning. I love learning from people. I love learning through processes, through data, through customer feedback. And if I'm not learning, you might as well put me six feet under. Like I just, my brain just shuts down. So inherent in companies that need revitalization or modernization or digitization or some kind of transformation inherent in the act of turning that around you're going to learn a lot especially that's kind of why i'm not afraid of changing industries that's just like okay it's a new way to learn but my top five strengths were learner strategic futuristic arranger and relator so those are that's how my brain is fired and if you think about those five strengths and how they fit together it makes perfect sense why I'm in where I'm at. You learn about the business, you build a strategy, you set a vision for the future, you arrange the things in the business that allows you to get success, and you relate to people on a very personal level in, in order to manage the change uh, associated with it. It's kind of funny because my lowest strength, my bottom strength out of all of them, I think they're 33 or something like that, my bottom is empathy. And I remember getting it back going, 
Am I a heartless a-hole? My bottom is empathy. Oh my God. You know, and, uh, and, um, I remember talking to the, the instructor and he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, no, no, no. Don't think that way. Your fifth strength is relator. And so he said, your ability to connect with people is through relator and you have to relate to them on a very, very personal level. Like I have to know you and I get to know you and we're on the same team, just, just sort of random empathy for things that I don't know or connect to on a personal level is not where my strength is. So at least I'm not a heartless a-hole. That makes me feel better, but I was a little worried for a second. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, I have not heard of this test before. So oh, I'm you've got to do free. it. You've got to do it. They'll give you the first five for free. And I think you have to pay to get all the, like the whole 33 or so in a list. That's a really great tip. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of revitalization, you, you joined David's Bridal a few months after it had successfully come out of bankruptcy and a few months before it was heading into a pandemic, unbeknownst to anybody at the time. <laughs> and I feel like that experience that you've had is a challenge that marketing students are going to study in the future. How did you navigate it? Where did you start? I think that the modern marketer is probably one of the most fascinating executive roles out there because you have to have a, you have to wear a lot of different hats from a strategic perspective. And what I mean by that is you have to be somebody's hero. You have to be somebody's accountant. You have to be somebody's consultant. You have to be somebody's basically CEO, but you know, you have to be somebody's influencer. Like you have to have all these skills. And I think the, you know, the shelf life on the modern CMO is not that long. And I think that's because these days, the experience of the brand and the story you're telling about the brand are now like this. You can't have an experience of your company that is disconnected or disassociated with whatever story you're telling about the brand. And so all of those cross-functional pieces have to align. That's where all the, the sort of modern skills and marketing start to hit because you have to be really good across the aisle and prioritize. And you also have to communicate marketing in a way that non-marketers can understand how scientific and financial modern marketing is through paid search and inflation and auction bidding and affiliates and all that. Only a super nerds really get it. And, but you have to have your partners understand it so you guys can all go on the joint journey together. But um, answering the specific question about COVID is actually an interesting one, Stephanie, because when we, February of last year, was the first month in the company's recent history that all of our metrics had started to go the right way. So our digital transformation plan that Joan had set in place was working. We had comped traffic, comped sales, comped conversion, comped NPS, everything was great. Then everything shut down, right? And we immediately had to flip to become an e-commerce only retailer, which, made, which helped us because we became essential retailer, right? The things that we had going for us were three when COVID hit. One is we already had a plan. We already had our digital transformation plan. So we just started expediting everything. Two, we already knew our brand position. We knew we needed to exist for magical moments. We knew that we had you know, a very clear roadmap for what our values were. So we knew how people were behaving. But the third thing, the most important thing out of all that that we had going for us is we had a customer obsessed, servant heart culture. And 
those, you know, three things together is what transformed us. And I can give you practical example after practical example. So stores are shut down. Brides, 93% of the time, don't want to buy a gown online. They want to buy it in a store. And why? They want the entire experience. They want the fitting. They want to be on the platform. They want the head to toe, the veil. They want to cry when they found the one. They want the IG moment, right? How the hell were we going to do that with all of our stores closed? That was the very first thing that we had to solve because we all buy things online. We've been buying on things personally for 10 or 15 years. You can arguably say out of all retail purchases, 30 foot, 35 cent, 40% globally is online, right? Well, brides has been 7% for the last 15 years. It's never gone up, right? So they don't want to buy online. So we were sitting in a meeting. We said, how do we solve that? The team came up with, we're going to have to give it to her virtually. We set up virtual stylists, virtual Zooms, virtual uh, appointment flows. We did everything virtually. And in 10 days, we launched it. 10 days. So you have to have all that pulled together. What made our employees want to move that fast? What barriers did they bust down in order to get that done? You're talking about all new processes. We turned all 300 stores into fulfillment centers. Because we were an essential retailer, our stylists could actually go in and work because they were fulfilling econ orders. So they weren't in violation of even any local restrictions. Like all of that played out over a 10 day period. Wow. And it, it was fascinating as an executive to sit back and watch these amazing people take an ordinary situation and create an extraordinary outcome. Why do you think the team was so motivated? We have an industry that is very emotionally charged and everything about the rest of her life is dependent on this day. Every picture she looks at for the rest of her marriage, she's going to think about the day, the dresses, the colors, the emotion, the moment, and we can't screw that up. And our supply chains, our end-to-end supply chain systems are lined up to make that a successful day for her. Meaning if trends turn, we talk to our folks in our supply chain and we have beaded jumpsuits in our stores in six weeks. Why? Because that's what she wants, right? So everything about our business is wired around serving her, creating it magical and taking her breath away. So that kind of was already there, but when you take the transformation plan and that culture and the brand ethos and brand new challenges, there was nothing the team couldn't do. They just, they just brought it. That's amazing. I, you know, I have to share with you I bought my wedding dress from David's Bridal in 2008 in Phoenix, Arizona. And, and the, I love it. Yes. So I am an OG customer and the experience was amazing. It really, you know, my mom came with, I still remember the name of the associate who helped us. Her name was Summer. Uh, <laughs> Is she, I wonder if she's still here. I should look. She might. I mean, you you nailed it. It's a hard business to just pivot and do fully e-com because it is about connections. Like you mentioned earlier, I'd love to hear more. One is what was that virtual experience like? How did someone virtually try on a dress and what tech did you use to make that happen? And then two, as you think forward with people coming back into stores, how do you want that experience to continue to evolve? When we set up virtual stylists, which meant customers could go onto our website, schedule 
they could either schedule a guaranteed time with a virtual stylist, or they could just schedule a virtual stylist and the stylist would call them when they were ready. Either way, they could do that. But we had to set all that up. We had to train 300 people on how to do it in all the stores. We had to change our appointment flows. We need to change all of our processes because it's totally different. How are you going to fit a gown on somebody virtually? You know what I mean? So you think of it, oh, you just set up virtual stylists. No, no, no. The entire selling process, the entire magical experience that was happening in stores, that had to turn virtual. So we had all of that, but there was one thing missing. The thing that was missing is that she needed a different solution to actually virtually experience the dress itself. And so we partnered with a company called Vertebrae. And they did through photogrammetry, rendered our top selling wedding dresses through photogrammetry. And what that meant is they rendered them, we put them on our website. We have, for example, one dress with 18,000 hand-sewn beads on it. 18,000, these ladies hand sew them, it's amazing. Wow. So they rendered that. And so through augmented reality, she would go to the website. The stylist would say, okay, hit that button on your phone, point it to your bedroom floor, and push that button and it it rendered that gown in augmented reality right there in her room, Stephanie. So she could look at it and almost touch it. Obviously it's not physically and tactile there, but she could almost touch it, but she could walk around it. She could see the back, she could see the train, she could see the neckline, she could see the sleeves. And that was the thing that did it, right? They absolutely loved it. And we have increased the amount of SKUs on augmented reality three times since COVID, which brings me to the last part of your question, which is when you look to the future, do you see those things evolving and staying or are they going away? And we thought during COVID that, oh, these were the store closing strategies. They're still doing it. We've sold millions of dollars worth of product through virtual styling. It's wow. crazy. Yeah. So it's really, really fun. That is so cool. I think about my, my four-year-old son has an app like that, that lets him see a T-Rex in his room. And it's so oh, yeah. bringing, you know, a dress to life. And it's interesting too, that you, it, it sounds like you're saying you don't necessarily see the customer experience completely reverting to what it was pre-COVID that I don't. time is informing it and we're going to have a blend. I do see that. I do see that. I, I think the bricks and clicks experience is going to be one in the same. And I see it evolving even more, such as we have thousands of products we sell online through gifts and decor and personalization, but it's very hard to put 10,000 SKUs in a store. Like how the hell are you going to do that? So we are working with a company out of New York as a startup to actually render those products virtually inside of a store. So we're going to do the reverse. So just like Vertebrae put the dress in your house, we're going to put online products virtually in a store. So you can see it. You don't need to see it at home like that necessarily. But if you walk in the store and you look up and it's a blank wall, but you can see virtually through this process that's proprietary. Oh, I see that. And I see that through this virtual AR experience. That's amazing. That's what we're working on now. We're trying to get, we're trying to get out in the next couple of months. And I guess that solves too for if say you don't have something in stock or whatever, someone can come into your store and see any dress they want. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that one of your earlier roles was as a call center operations manager for Continental. That's right. 
As we're talking about customer experience, I wonder what that job taught you about working with customers and customer service. I think out of all the roles I've had, that's the one that's the most impactful when I look back. That taught me just, it not only taught me a lot about customers, but it taught me a ton about leadership, right? Because I went from having zero reports to hundreds in a call center. The first mistake I made, and I've made a ton over my career, but the first mistake I made going into that job was if I do everything right, people will like me. What I realized is that leadership is not a popularity contest. You know, it's not, it's not about that. It's about changing hearts and minds to make people want to do things differently for the customer. At the time, our CEO was a guy named Gordon Bethune, and he was remarkable at changing hearts and minds through this simple, easy way of people to understand. And he told a story about changing heart and minds. And he said, I started out in the airline business as an airline mechanic. This guy was the CEO of Continental Airlines. And he goes, I started out as an airline mechanic. He said, do you know how how fast I could fix that plane when I wanted to? You know, and that was what I was trying to learn. I was just bumping and bruising my way along, but I learned a lot about leadership. It was one thing for me to be on the phone and want to give customers amazing experience and be happy and help them solve their problems. How was I going to get hundreds and hundreds of people to do that? So the, the first thing was I had to learn it wasn't a popularity contest. The second thing that you have to do is you have to be able to paint a vision for the team that makes them want to be extraordinary to the customers. And that's everything from what we called CLMs, which is career limiting moves, where when you make a mistake, you kind of laugh about it and you learn instead of people going, oh my God, I'm gonna get in trouble. You kind of celebrate mistakes and you learn from it. But the third thing around, just around the customer experience is I learned pre-marketing that the best marketing dollar you can spend is a happy customer. So that includes problem resolution, fixing it, Go ahead and give them the 60 bucks because it'll cost you 6,000 in bad press if you don't, things like that. So much good advice there and particularly around scaling leadership, how to take what you know how to do and, and help, as you said, hundreds of people do it as well. I also, I want to pivot a bit and get your thoughts on any connections you see between parenthood and leadership. So our uh, host of CMO Moves, who I'm filling in for, Heidi Palermo, just had twin girls. You can do her better because you have five kids, including triplets. You are my hero. Did becoming a mom change you as a leader in any way? Oh my gosh. I lo- you are the first person ever to ask me that question. That is such a great question. The answer is yes, it did. And it's so funny because I do these, I speak at like leadership conferences a lot. And a lot of them are women, you know, I've done like sororities and just all kinds of women conferences. And I have an entire leadership presentation that is nothing but examples of things that happened to me with my kids that I was able to take into the job the next day. I remember one of them that I tell is that, you know, yes, I had triplets, obviously I had a litter. So if you have more than two kids, you have a litter. I remember when my triplets were about two and a half or three years old. And every Saturday I would get up in the morning and have my glass of iced tea and the house was quiet. And I'd put the house back together because my five kids destroyed it the night before. I would vacuum and clean. And, and uh, one Saturday morning I'd set my tea down on my coffee table and I was vacuuming and I was vacuuming over one side of the room and I looked over at my son And he was leaning over my glass on the coffee table, 
with like a like spit hanging over trying to aim it into my tea glass you know and I'm standing from across the room going oh my god what are the chances of him that's the first time he's ever done that the chances are not good I'm like oh my the first time you've witnessed it yeah exactly but but in that instance, I mean, what that taught me going into office is shit happens, you know, and don't sweat the small stuff. You got to let it roll off your back and you, you know, got to pick yourself up and, and move forward because when you're a leader, that's what you've got to do for the team. And I, I remember years and years later, this might have been probably about 10 years ago, one of my mentors told me. He said, you know what? His name is um, Bob Marcus. He's the absolutely the best mentor for women, female executives anywhere on the planet. Like he is so good. And he said, you know what you ought to do? He says, you ought to go home and have a conversation with your kids one-on-one and ask them, what kind of leader do you think I am at work? And it never occurred to me to even ask them that. And uh, your sister may not have the opportunity yet to do this because her maybe her babies are small, but mine are, you know, 30, 20, uh, 30, and then three 25s and a 24. Uh, But I did this when they were in their early teens. And it was fascinating. I highly recommend anybody who's listening. And even if your kids are young, just ask them that because the answers I got back were just what they were so interesting and cool, but they were so thought-provoking because you're asking somebody who knows you intimately there you know you're their mother but you ask them like how do you think I am at work when I'm leading other people because I don't need to go into all the answers they were hilarious but I highly recommend doing it it's a fascinating exercise it was awesome that's so cool I'm gonna have a one-year-old and an almost five-year-old the five-year-old might be my dad that'll be good I'm gonna that'll be good Let's talk about your team. It sounds like management is something that you really spend a lot of time thinking about and have had a lot of experience in. And something one of your team members actually mentioned to me was that you're really known for giving employees latitude to make mistakes. And I thought that was such an interesting and cool comment to make, you know, about a a manager. So what is, what's your view on mistakes and how do you encourage that in a way that is constructive and productive? I take that as a big compliment, actually, if somebody said that. Yeah, I really sort of learned the value of that lesson when I was at DSW, because we had seen some really phenomenal success early on in our transformation. And, but what I saw starting to happen is that that hunger and that fire was starting to go away as people in the business kind of got safe oh, we're successful and we're confident and we're doing this and everything we touch is good. That means we're not taking risk. If we're not making mistakes, we're not taking up risk. And I think when you think about digital and transformation and innovation, you're always looking around the next five corners, not just what the 10 feet is in front of you. And you're supposed to fall on your face, not on your butt. Fall forward, not backwards. So we implemented this thing called CLM Awards, which is career limiting move, which is this funny way of celebrating risk. And I remember the week I launched it, a guy named Scott came into my office and he goes, I think I'm on the CLM list. And I'm like, really? What happened? You know, uh, he goes, well, you know, that email that we were going to send out to three and a half million customers this morning. I said, yeah. And he goes, I sent it out and the offer was $50 off a $50 purchase. It was supposed to be $5 off. And I'm like, oh, that's a good one. That's a good mistake. But if you just busted them for the mistake, 
The real story behind that is that we had a process where we did not put anything uh, in market seven days within seven days because we had a QA process. We had all these legal things we had to review. But Scott's team took the challenge to try to get an email out in 48 hours to take advantage of uh, an Uggs buy that we had just started selling Uggs boots at DSW. So he, he had taken seven days and shrunk it into two to try to help the business. So his heart was in a good place. So that's how the mistake was made. If you have this, this culture, if you can't make mistakes, would Scott and his team volunteer to help the business and consolidate seven days into two? No. So that's why making mistakes is important. CLMs have been a lot of fun over my career. Like we've had, I always seem to have, have more on the list than anybody, which I think is important as a leader, but I think mistakes are crucially important. You have to peel the onion back five layers to understand why and how we can get better. But if you trip up, great, fine. Let's, that means you're trying and you're taking risks and trying to push the business forward. It's like that, that phrase, no good deed goes unpunished. You don't want a culture where someone gets penalized for, for raising their hand and for trying. Absolutely. Now, you've mentioned digital and tech and innovation a lot. And I know that IT became part of your remit last year. How are you integrating those functions? How are you integrating digital and marketing? It sounds like it's very natural for you. It is. And I tell you, I've had a blast with those guys. It's a compliment to Jim because he's very sort of forward thinking and progressive as he thinks about transformation. And it was a very provocative move for him to give me IT responsibility. But it, if you think about it, it's sort of a philosophy. Everything IT does, all the output. The only exception would be security and compliance and privacy and those things. But when you think about app dev, everything that they should be doing should be furthering the customer experience or some type of profit improvement. Both of those should be, the, in my view, sort of what they're doing. And because I had responsibility for digital and innovation and the brand experience is so intertwined to the experience, you're, you're the story you're telling of a brand. You know, it, it made sense in Jim's mind what 90% of the output should be of IT should be aligned to what my strategies are anyway, and how I'm serving my internal customers. And that's why he put them together. And it has been absolutely phenomenal because now the brand stories we tell as a company are completely aligned to our processes, are completely aligned to IT's output. But I don't make the decisions in a vacuum around what IT's output is going to be. That is done collectively through our ELT. We have an ELT ops process every Wednesday. And part of that agenda is to go back and look at the ELT or the IT priorities and ensure that they are in line. And sometimes we have to pump one and put something back in because of a new development. But an example of, of that is we finally found a good partner to give us mobile point of sale and store. Well, that was an IT roadmap issue that is what was 18 months out. That is now going to be implemented in about 120 days. But if we don't have that alignment and they're not all, we're not all singing the same hymn, you can't get those efficiencies. And it's been an integral part of our turnaround that Jim has aligned all those things together. And I know another area you have been pressing into as a company is really expanding your products and expanding your customer base. I noticed just 
on your website today, there is a whole quinceanera line of dresses. I noticed that David's Bridal is celebrating Pride Month and all types of weddings. Can you tell me a little bit more about the future of the brand and where you're expanding? Yeah, I can tell you very simply, Stephanie, we want to own every dress in our closet, period. From a christening gown, when you're a baby or graduation or a quinceanera or uh, junior quinceanera or prom or homecoming or bride or girls night out or Kentucky Derby or any time a girl wants to make the world her runway, we want to own that gown and that's where we're headed. We've got Diamond Loyalty Program that is rewarding her. We now have almost 450,000 people on this program, and we've launched it five months ago. And we're giving her rewards all along the way for everything she purchases. And so we have that. We've got our end-to-end supply chain so we can turn around trends. But we also want to get into new categories such as Kiesmanetta, and that has been received phenomenally well in the market. We are learning lessons every day about gowns and colors and what's working and what's not. I've got TikTok videos of girls trying on the mermaid gown, but they call it the mermaid gown that they love, but that's where we're headed. We have phenomenal artisans in our supply chain. We have an incredible design office. We have a great insights department that is reading trends all the time, such as colored wedding gowns, like black wedding gowns is now a gigantic thing. So we've got black wedding gowns in our assortment. Maybe they're beautiful, but our merchants are so good at staying on the trends. And why can't we sell our pantsuit, our rompers, our job suits, our girls night out? We can. We've got little white dress we just implemented. I'm wearing one of our tops right now under a suit at work. I've got a pink tool skirt right there that I'm wearing, right? So we've got so many things that are everyday wear. So we are, we're going big or staying home and we want to own everything in our closet, every dress in our closet. That's such a great way to put owning every dress in her closet and being with her throughout, you know, her, her life. What rules have you broken that needed absolutely to be broken? One is I don't have an AOR. I don't have no desire to have an AOR and I'll never have an AOR. I know they work for some people, some companies like them. I don't think agency of records, at least for my companies I've been in are right. I found that I found it very hard for them to move fast and I found it very difficult for them to be efficient. So that's one. The second rule that I threw a grenade in is We don't use paid models anymore, Stephanie. We haven't since last February. We use employees, employees' friends, employees' families, micro-influencers. I can think of one time I've had to hire a single model in the last six months. So I don't do that. And it doesn't work for every industry. I, I put that out there. It doesn't work for every industry. But it absolutely works for David's because our part of our brand ethos is real people, real brides, authenticity. I want people that look at our marketing to go, I could totally hang out with that girl. I could totally go have a martini with that girl. I could go do brides that brunch or babes that brunch with that girl. If we feel cold and standoffish and uppity, then I've lost it. Like that's not David's bridal at all. And we have a phenomenal internal creative team that are able to take untrained basically actors with their models and get them in front of the camera and bring them to life in a way that is remarkable. I think those are probably the two biggest ones I've done 
the third one would be, I don't know if it's a rule that needs to be broken per se, but my leadership style is very hands-off. I, like Laura, I just hired her for a senior manager of a philanthropy PR in internal comms. We had an onboarding. I gave her the strategy and I said, go for it. Tell me when you need me. Here's the strategy and the vision for this group. Tell me what you need me from me. And I love that because people find their inner queen, their inner king, their inner, like whatever it is. And seeing somebody do that is like one of the most amazing things about being a leader. It's like watching your child ride their bike for the first time and they don't fall, right? That's what it's like. And that there's no better feeling than that. So I don't know if it's necessarily a rule that's been broken, but that's most definitely my style. And I found it to be very, very effective. I've read often the downside of micromanaging is employees feel like they're not trusted. And so they can kind of shrink. And it sounds like what you're talking about is very empowering leadership style where there's trust implicated and support and really letting someone rise to that occasion. I think too, the rules you're breaking around marketing and creating content is super interesting because I've noticed David's Bridal is doing a lot with user-generated content. And I wonder if you've like, have you cut back on your marketing budget to, to make that happen? Has that been a conscious change in direction? It, it is conscious and we have reduced the marketing budget. We have a, a very appropriately allocated budget now, but it was way overspending in my opinion when I got here. And we've been able from the time I got here to now reduced our marketing spend by almost 40% and we're maintaining a 40% reduction. I feel very good about that strategy. There's been some talent attrition because it is a different way to create content and it's more work. It's more work on the internal guys because they've got to figure out how to get untrained people to look like models. We use real people, so we have real sizes. I want people that look real and and that's really important to our brand. But there's been a few people that have left along the way because that's not really their style. They want to go on a photo shoot, hire tons of models and spend $2 million on a commercial. We're not going to do that. The first commercial that we did cost zero because we did it all through UGC and we got wedding videos from our employees and we stitched it together and made Love Finds a Way, our most successful campaign to date. So I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I have, I have one story on that I'll share with you. One of the girls that work here, she's an EA for another department. And I said, you get you and all your friends in here. Let's get you in front of the camera. And she brought one of her girlfriends with her. And one of her girlfriends is plus size. And I saw the photography like two days later and I was blown away with how good the content came out. It was so good. And this plus size girl is gorgeous, like this beautiful, like milky, creamy complexion. And she's got these twinkly green eyes and she's just so beautiful. And the employee came and told me later, she goes, she was sitting in the chair getting ready to go on set and having her hair and makeup done. And she got these huge tears in her eyes and she said, This is absolutely the first time in my entire life I've felt pretty. She'd never felt pretty before. And so we never would have those moments if we were hiring people. And to know that one of my colleagues I work with had that experience here because of our content, man, it doesn't get better than that. I mean, it really does. And it's amazing. That is amazing. So if, if time and money were no object, and you weren't a CMO, I'm very curious to know what you would be. 
Oh my God, <laughs> that's amazing. So I've never been asked this and I've actually never said this out loud to anybody, one person my whole life. So you're getting very, very special treatment. I would love to run a website called Oaks, one of a kinds. And it's one of a kind things that you only make one of. And I have this little thing I do outside of work that helps me with my creative process, which is I design and make one of a kind leather jackets that have paintings of them or American flags or the state of Texas or Harry Potter. I make these leather jackets. So I would probably build a studio and just make those full time and sell one. That's it. The only one. And I put them on the website. That's why I call the site Oaks. So that's my dream. So somebody's going to go buy it, the website, and I'm going to have to pay a gazillion dollars for it later. When I want to buy my own website, I just gave it to somebody right now. <laughs> Not buy Kelly's website. This is Don't do dream. it. Don't buy my website. That's my dream. <laughs> Kelly, you have a side hustle. You have I, I give them away. I give them away though, because they're, they're not ready to be sold. I just keep giving them away. <laughs> that is so cool. We ask this question of every guest and I don't know if anyone has actually had the name of their other job. Like there's <laughs> a breath away from happening. Uh, breath away. <laughs> One final thing I'll just bring up uh, before we close out today. I, I hear that you have a wedding in the family coming up. I'm excited. Oh my God. How the heck do you know stuff? I have you so research. <laughs> Your data mining skills are like number one, man. I love it. Yes, my son Derek proposed to his girlfriend Miranda. They're getting married Friday, December third or fourth. I should know it, but it's whatever that Friday is. And yes, we have we've been to David's bridal many times over the last few months. <laughs> well, so you've had a chance to be a customer as well. Yes, I love it. I love being on both sides of the register. <laughs> Although I don't think I can operate our point of sale, but you get the joke. <laughs> Well, Kelly, congrats to you and your family. And thank you so much for joining us today. I just think this was a fascinating conversation. I love hearing about your journey and your leadership style. And I'm going to be excited to watch where the brand goes next. Thank you, Stephanie. I enjoyed it. Talk soon. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, we'd love your help in sharing CMO Moves with one of your friends or colleagues. And please also be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Better yet, leave us a review while you're at it. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.